All right. Well, it is good to see you guys. My name is Luke, and uh, I, I, I have a weird history with FBC. I've been coming to FBC for like a year and a half. So a weird thing is, you know, every Sunday when people, uh, Chris, whoever's doing welcome and greeting, says, says, okay, spread out and talk to each other and say it's good to see you or whatever it is. The question that's always asked is, you know, how long have you been coming to FBC? And my, question, my answer is always like, oh, a year and a half. And like, oh, that's great. I'm so glad you're, you're new here. Do you know anyone? I'll go, yeah, I, I know a couple of people. And then somehow we'll be talking, and I'll, I'll ask them, I'll go, what are you doing? And they'll say maybe, oh, I'm going through TC. And I'll go, oh, yeah, TC is great. And I go, you've heard of it. And I go, oh, I, I already went through TC. So I'm like this weird person who already went through TC, but I just started coming to FBC. <laughs> So, and, and Mr. Ike back there had to gre- grade my terrible Greek papers and all that. Trevor and I graduated together uh, from TC. So, so I, I have like this weird jump start with coming to FBC, knowing folks and already having so many great friends and so many great memories. Uh, one of my favorite memories, Trev, you went, we, we went to Minneapolis together, right? So I'm not wearing them right now, but I normally wear toe shoes. You guys know toe shoes? Yes. Oh my God. They're the best. They're the best. And uh, so we're, we're in Minneapolis. We went there for a Desiring God conference in January. No joke, it was negative 13 degrees. Negative 13 degrees, and I wore my toe shoes, which they were my winter toe shoes. I have a lot of toe shoes. So I have winter toe shoes. They're wool and they're high tops. I thought they'd be good. They were awesome, except for in between my toes, they literally froze. So now my toe shoes have these like permanent freeze marks in between each of the toes where they were free, frozen. Um, so that's my, one of my favorite FBC memories, was going to <laughs> Minneapolis, walking the streets of Minneapolis with all my TC friends, and uh, being negative 13 degrees, and it was so cold. But we had a good time. We had a good time. So it was good. Well, if you would, I know you've already prayed, but would you please join me in prayer as uh, we kick off this message? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time, and I pray that you would direct our our thoughts to you, that you would lift up our eyes to you, that we would gaze upon you, gaze upon your word, and that you would comfort us, that through this time together, you would remind us of who you are, that we would have a greater confidence in you, and Lord, that we would walk away tonight trusting you more, knowing that you are our shepherd, as we prayed earlier. And so we we ask that you would be exalted and that you would lead our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So as I look back on the past two years of this thing that we call COVID, all I think is, is it real? Is it a joke? I can't really figure it all out. It has been absolutely nuts. I don't really know what my thoughts are about this whole thing, but there are some things I've learned and I've been humbled about. One of the things I've learned is that Western society, our American culture, it's incredibly fragile, isn't it? It's incredibly fragile. I mean, your lives have been drastically changed in these last two years. The things that we as Americans boasted in are suddenly extremely weak. Our economy has been hurt. There is inflation. Things cost more now than they should have ever cost before. It's hard to purchase things. I work for a company that provides um, like technology services to schools. And a couple of months ago, actually the start of the school year, for one of our schools, we purchased 30 computers for one classroom. These were pretty good computers. Each of them were about $2,500 a piece. We got 14 of the computers. 
The other 16 computers just never showed up. We reached out to the company and we said, hey, where's the other 16 computers? And they said, oh, we're not going to get those. And we said, so are they like on back order? You're going to send them when they come in stock? And he go, no, they're, they're never going to be in stock. And then we go, so what are you going to do? And they go, oh, we're just going to give you your money back. We're thinking, this is a lot of money. You don't, you don't want to fight for the money? Like, we want to give you this money. And they go, no, we, we can't even take it. There's no way we can get you those computers that we promised you. Our culture has been rocked. One of the things that Americans really love is entertainment. We love entertainment. And our massive entertainment industry has been rocked by COVID. Sports seasons have been done, finished before they even started. It's not uncommon to hear of a musician canceling his or her entire tour before it even starts because of COVID. There, there are football games that have, that have been canceled last second because of COVID. Back in uh, the end of December, the Holiday Bowl, this big college bowl, was going to be at Petco, State, or Petco Park down in San Diego. Petco Stadium, Petco Park is a baseball stadium. The cost to convert it to a football field was $2.2 million. Four hours before kickoff, the game was canceled. Just canceled. Like, no prior warning, no, hey, we don't know if this is going to happen or not. It was just four hours before, games canceled. UCLA had some COVID cases, so they canceled it. That's $2.2 million down the drain. Think of all the people that traveled across the country to go to that game, booked hotels, flew into town, flipping burgers in the parking lot, and said, what, there's no game? I just tipped a barbecue over, just like, <laughs> let the coals just burn the concrete there. I'd be, I'm done. Our society is, is panicked. Grocery stores are empty. Do you remember when all this COVID stuff first started? What was the worst part? Toilet paper. Right? Toilet paper. It's like egad, the end of the world. The rapture just come. Because if there is no toilet paper, I can't do this. I can't. And that has led to a culture, a society that is scared. In fact, sometimes it seems like we're just on the edge of insanity. Isn't it amazing how quickly riots can happen now? doesn't matter where you're at politically. We're just like a little brush fire, just ready to, to light on fire and turn into a massive inferno. And yet, as Christians, as Christians, as believers in Christ, we are to be different from the rest of the world. That's how the world's reacting, but that's not how we are to react. Peter describes us as, as being a people with a hope that lies within. Paul, while writing from prison in Philippians 4, gave a series of commands to Christians to describe how they are to live in all times. In Philippians 4, 4 to 7, Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Then he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. That passage, that reasonableness, that not being anxious, that should describe you. That, that, that sh we should be distinct from the culture around us, which is just on the verge of, of blowing up. We, as believers, 
tonight, we, we were singing to God, right? We, we were singing, it is well with my soul. That should be real. Those shouldn't just be poetic words that we echo. They should be words that are coming from the very depths of our heart because of the reality of knowing who Christ is. And our rejoicing, our reasonableness, our level-headedness. I don't know if headedness is a word, but it is now. It should be known to the world around us. We should not be panicking. We shouldn't be joining in the voice of anger that's around us. Paul said to not be anxious. So the, toilet, so the grocery store doesn't have toilet paper. God is ruling. So you've got to wear a mask at times. God is ruling. So you've got to get a vaccine. God is ruling. And we should be a people who are seen as level-headed. And when crazy times come, we make our requests of God. We are seen as a calm voice, even while turmoil is around us. In fact, I hope that people desire to have you with them because you're not egging them on towards insanity, feeding their frenzy. And so the big question is, how do we do this? How do we live as a people who are distinct? How do we live as a people who are calm, who are level-headed, who live under the lordship and sovereignty and reality of Christ? How do we do that? Well, to answer that question, tonight we're going to be in a psalm. And we're going to be in a familiar psalm. We're going to be in Psalm 23. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Psalm 23. I love the sound of Bibles opening, by the way. It's like music to my ears. Or hearing phones turn on as you type it in. This is Psalm 23. Psalms, the Psalms are the original worship book for Israel. We've got our song books that we use here. The Psalms were the song book of Israel. It, it's where they, they turn to find, find songs that they would sing to the Lord. Some of the songs they would sing as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Some of the Psalms were songs that they sang while in Babylon in exile. These Psalms were the worship book of Israel. And the one that we're going to look at tonight, Psalm 23, was written by King David. Now, before David became king, he was a, a shepherd. And so this, this passage, it's a familiar passage, describing what a shepherd's life is like. And he compares his time as a shepherd, pre-king, to God's rule and role over our lives. This passage is important because we need to be reminded, we need to be comforted in the reality that you are not wandering through life aimlessly. We may feel that way sometimes, but you are not. You have a shepherd, God, who is guiding you through life. And we need a hope. We need a real hope. And we need to live as people who have a hope. So hopefully you're there. Let's go ahead and look at Psalm 23. Someone asked if I'm going to sing it tonight. The word is nay. I will not sing it tonight. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness 
and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love this psalm. And in this psalm, David gives us three reasons to trust God as our shepherd in perilous times. Here's three reasons to trust God to be our shepherd in perilous times, which we need a shepherd right now. And the first reason to trust God in perilous times is because God is a shepherd who is proactive. He's proactive. There's this this heresy, this heresy that's out there. You like how we're going to start a lesson on God? I'm going to start with a heresy. There's this heresy that's called open theism. Now, open theism tells us that God has no plan. He has no plan. God is just making things up as he goes. God is reacting to his creation. It's as if he's up in heaven watching us down on earth going, I wonder what they're going to do next. Really having no idea. You guys ever play ping pong? I, I love ping pong. There's a period of time where my brothers and I and, and a friend of ours, we, we played ping, ping pong like we wanted to be competitive, but we really weren't. In fact, my wife bought us uniforms. Um, <laughs> I, I still have one part of it. You remember OP shorts? They're corduroy shorts that like go like this far down. They're light blue, corduroy, and they're rather tight. And then I had like a, a turquoise shirt that matched it with like weird pattern. It was like racing stripes. And then I had a matching turquoise like track suit, track jacket. It was awesome. And, and we, went to, we went to Big Five and we actually bought fancy paddles and we bought a fancy case. And, and we had a ping pong table at our church and I had keys to the church. So we'd go down to church at like 1130, 12 o'clock at night. We'd go into youth room and we'd play some ping pong. It was awesome. Ping pong is a game of reflexes. You know, the ball's moving. You know, when you're a kid, it's just, it's, it's amazing. It's just like, bink, bink, and it goes across, right? But when you're playing ping pong for reals, you're getting that forward spin, you're getting the back spin, sideways spin, and you want that ball to go all over the place. You've got to have quick reflexes. Open theism makes God a ping pong player where you hit the ball and you don't know where it's going, and he's got to react just as fast as you hit it. He doesn't know where you're hitting, so it's like, oh, let me surprise you, God. And God's just trying to keep it going, keep it going. Let's just keep volleying. But he doesn't ever have a, a definite plan. God, open theism makes God a juggler. Just, you know, throwing it up in the air. Oops, I dropped one. You know, it's, it's always, just always reacting, trying to not drop any of these pins that are in the air. In open theism, God is, is not a comfort. Because God doesn't know what's happening. In fact, if God is not in control of everything, guess what? He's not God. The worst thing you could ever hear in life is for the heavens to open up and hear, oops. If God ever says, I didn't see that coming, you should be worried. But God is not reactionary. God isn't looking down and saying, I wonder what these little people are going to do next. God is sovereign. That means he's in charge. He has decrees. There are things that he has planned. And do you know when he planned these things? Not 10 years ago, not 100 years ago, not 1,000 years ago. Ephesians 1 says he planned them before the foundation of the world. Before there was anything here. Before there was a sun to shine light onto this earth. When there was nothing, God said, I know what's coming. He's planned these things. Before he said, let there be light, he knew where that light was going. And he said, this is what I will do. 
Now, compared to open theism, David gives us a different view of God. Look again at Psalm 23. Those first three verses describe to us a God who is proactive. Those first words are so memorable. You know them. It says, the Lord is my what? Shepherd. And you'll notice if you're looking at it right now, Lord is in all capital letters. Do you notice that in your Bibles, your Old Testament? Lord is in all capital letters. In the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, we're not talking about some, you know, Lord in a castle, like, yes, me Lord. Not that kind of a Lord. Lord in all capital letters is, is the divine holy name of God. It's actually Yahweh. It's, it's Yahweh. And, and Israel valued God's name so much. They didn't ever want to use his name in vain. The third commandment is you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. They never wanted to use his name in vain. So they were careful to never even utter his name. In fact, they didn't even want to carelessly write his name. So when they wrote his name, it, it would be bold. It would be capitalized in those Hebrew manuscripts. And that tradition has carried over into our English-speaking Bibles. So when you see in the Old Testament the word Lord in all capital letters, that means Yahweh. We're being very clear. So when David begins with, the Lord is my shepherd, he's not talking about some guy down the street. He doesn't want you to be confused. He is talking about Yahweh is his shepherd. And Yahweh proactively is, is leading. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And when I was a little kid, I learned this psalm, but I didn't understand this psalm. Probably because I thought like a four-year-old, which is not very good. And I said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So what I understood that to mean is, the Lord is my shepherd, who I don't want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not want God. <laughs> At some point, I learned what grammar is, and I learned what that little semicolon is. And I learned the reality of the verse. And it means, the Lord is my shepherd, so I, I don't want anything. I, I don't need anything. I have everything that I need why? Because the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. There is never a want that is unfulfilled because God is my shepherd. He's like that shepherd who leads his flock exactly to where they need to be. And God sees each of his sheep. In John 10, Jesus says he knows his sheep by name. He leads each of his sheep and he says, this is what they need and I will give it to them and I will take them there. Now, the culture around us doesn't live like that. When your neighbors have more toilet paper than you, you go, oh, no, I better go to Costco and buy the rest of it. <laughs> My neighbor has more than I do. But as Christians, living under the lordship of God, when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that means I can now live under the, un, under the reality, under the expectation that he gives me all that I need. Now, that's a tough lesson to learn, though. It's something that we need to learn. I mean, what I mean is it's a skill that we have to learn. In Philippians 4, again, Paul said something interesting. In speaking of the same thing, Paul said, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul said, I have learned, I, I, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He then says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know what words I find interesting in that passage is when Paul says, I have learned. I, I have learned. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. I, I know how to be brought low. 
This is something we have to learn because initially we don't live that way. We don't naturally live in contentment. It's something we have to learn. Paul said those words while in prison, while, while chained to a Roman soldier. And that contentment was present when he had a lot. And then when he had very little, he learned to be content. Saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That doesn't mean that you'll never be hungry. It doesn't mean you'll never be short of cash. I mean, you're college students. Not exactly the wealthiest of demographics, right? But this means even for you, especially right now, that the lesson is for you to learn to be content. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd. I shall not want. It means learning to be content. Learning that he has given you all that you need to accomplish what he's predestined for you to do. I, I'll, I'll confess, I mean, I love video games, but I... Saying that makes me seem like a terrible video game player because the video games I play the most are on my NES Classic. I I love old school Nintendo games because that's what I sat in front of the TV playing for hours on end when I was like six years old. And I remember playing Zelda. And remember when I was a when I was when I was a boy. (laughs) When I was playing Nintendo as a kid, I I didn't have the internet to go on and be like, I'm stuck. What do I do? I had no way to do that. So I remember playing the original Zelda in some little like triangle-shaped dungeon, not knowing how to get through the dungeon. I'm like, I don't know how to do this. And there was a skill I learned somewhere along the way, which was the developers of the game have given you everything you need to get through this level. It's a, just a video game tip for you, by the way. If you ever get stuck, they've given you everything you need to get through this level. So I go through my inventory. All right, I got some bombs. I'm going to blow up every wall. Nope, that didn't work. I've got this lantern, this magical lantern. I'm going to try and set everything on fire in here. Finally, I go, I got this boomerang. And I don't know why boomerangs do this, but they freeze bad guys. I've tried throwing boomerangs in real life. They don't freeze anybody. So I'm going to take this boomerang. I'm going to throw it at the bad guy. hits the bad guy. For some reason, he stops spinning. So now I can run at him and hit, hit him with my little pixel sword. And, and that works. The developers have given you everything that you need. And in the same way, God has given you everything that you need to accomplish what he has commissioned for you to do. And our job is to learn to live with this understanding, to learn to be content, to live under that reality. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have all that I need. And we have to learn that. We have to learn that he is our shepherd, that he is actively leading us. And our satisfaction is not found in whether or not I have to wear a mask or not, or get a shot, or whether or not I'm ever allowed to eat inside a restaurant again. My satisfaction is knowing that there is an active God who is actively governing and ruling over his creation and shepherding them. Satisfaction is knowing that you know the Lord and that he provides. Another way that God is proactively shepherding his people is that God gives us rest. I love this next line. It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me lie down. You can picture this, this scene of a shepherd leading his sheep to a green valley. They've come through a, a dark crevice of an area and they've made it into a, a, beautiful, a beautiful grassy knoll. And there may have been predators on the prowl, but he has led them to a place where they can get rest and, and they can forget their concerns and lie down and get some much-needed sleep. 
Now, this is an interesting part where it says he makes me lie down in green pastures because we don't always want to rest. In fact, I would say, and there's probably more extremes, but there primarily are, are two extremes facing us when it comes to rest. There are those who work too hard. There are people who work way too hard. Uh, Elon Musk, you know who Elon Musk is? When he's not building rocket ships and cars that are electric, I think he dresses up in a red suit and he's called Iron Man. This is Elon Musk. I've heard it said that Elon Musk worked, and there was one time where he worked for 120 hours a week. 120 hours. There's only 168 hours in a week. So I don't know how he can work for 120 hours a week. So since then, he has cut back, and now I hear he only works for 90 hours a week. I'm glad he's resting. All right, so there's an extreme of working too hard. But there's another extreme, which is playing too hard. This is the person who, he doesn't work too hard, but he has way too many extracurricular activities. This is the person who's out every single night. He's out seven nights a week. This is the family, maybe you know these families, that are so busy that they're exhausted. They're too busy to go to church on Sundays. A guy came to me once upon a time, and, and he said uh, he wasn't coming to church on Sundays. And he said, is there any way that we can stop having church? This is such a great line, by the way. Is there any way we can stop having church on Sundays and only have it on Saturday nights? Because I like to go mountain bike riding, and I'd rather go mountain bike riding on Sunday morning. So can we, he like seriously was asking me if we could change Sundays. And I, I was thinking, actually, I told him this. I, this, isn't like, this isn't hypothetical. Sometimes I say things braver in my head than I do in real life. You ever do that? No, I really said this. I, I said, no, because Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday morning. Had he risen from the grave Saturday night, maybe we can talk about this. But he rose from the grave on Sunday morning. So I expect you to be here on Sunday mornings. There are some people who are so busy that if they do go to church on Sunday mornings, it's just one of many activities, and they never are able to sit down with their family and worship the Lord and relax. I, I firmly believe that Sunday needs to be a day where we celebrate what Christ has accomplished for us and to find actual rest. But there are some who fill up every single second of their life, and, and this is actually something that college students can become victims of which is you don't have a job, or you, have, you might have a job, but you're not working a ton of hours. You're not married. You don't have a family. And so you've got all this time. And so you fill up every single second of your life. Every minute of your life is, is filled with some kind of activity. But in God's providence, he's given us the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath, to, to keep it holy. The Sabbath is a, a day of rest. Remember God created the earth in how many days? Six. six. It's like a pop quiz. It's like a trick question because you all want to say seven. But he really created in six days and he rested on the seventh. He, he rested on the seventh. On the seventh. And, and God has given us a day of rest. And, and I love having that day off. I think that's critical. I think it's important for us. A day to, to find rest. Something I love to do is I, I love to look back on God's sovereignty. A great strategy, by the way, is just look back on your life. See where you, where you are today and go, where was I two years ago? Where was I 10 years ago? So I'm going to do that for a second. Do you remember when we went on quarantine two years ago? It was almost two years ago exactly right now, by the way. And I remember hearing people say, yeah, we're not allowed to leave the house. I was like, you're joking, right? You can't tell me I can't leave the house. 
Oh, church is going to be canceled. Yeah, right. And then what happened? Yeah, we weren't allowed to leave our house. Church was canceled. Schools were closed. People weren't going to their offices. It, it was insane. We were told to stay home. For how long? Only two weeks. But there was something I learned during that strange time of self-quarantine. Now, not going to church, that was bad. That was something I don't agree with. But there was something that I've always thought was interesting. In, this, in, in Psalm 23, it says... He makes me lie down in green pastures. You notice that? He makes me lie down in green pastures. It doesn't say like he coaxes you. Like, hey, look, you little sheep, come here, lay down. No, it says he, he makes you. <laughs> and there was this moment over the last two years where I realized I was forced to get rest. Because I was out every single night. I was one of those people who was out every single night. I was never with my family. And I was exhausted. And when I was forced to be at home, I realized, wow, I don't do this enough. I, I, Sunday mornings, I got up and I got to spend time with my family before worshiping the Lord. And this was a way that God made me lie down in green pastures. We were forced to stay home. We were forced to get rest. That's just like a, an immediate one. But God makes us get rest at times. He proactively gives us rest. Another way that God proactively leads as a shepherd is he provides safety. It says he, he leads us to still waters. He leads me beside quiet waters. Now, in order to understand how God provides safety to us, in order to understand the kindness of God, we have to understand that God is far kinder with us than we deserve. When Adam and Eve sinned, I love that you guys are in Genesis, by the way. I love Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, do you ever think about that humanity should have ended that day? Like the day Adam was like, hum, it's, we all should have just been like, hum, like in Back to the Future. You ever watch Back to the Future where they slowly start to dissolve and disappear? That should be us right now. Adam bites the apple, poof, we're gone. Nothing's here. That's what should have happened. But in God's kindness, he provided a sacrifice and he promised us a son who would crush the head of the serpent. In God's kindness, he allowed life to survive after Adam ate of the fruit. A couple chapters later in Genesis, you get to Genesis 6. And you, you read about right before Noah and all of that. God, it describes mankind. And it says that every thought of mankind was wicked from his youth. Was wicked from his youth. Think of that. Next time you see a cute little baby, you're like, what a cute little baby. Remember Genesis 6. His thoughts are wicked from his youth. <laughs> that little, that little six-month-old, wicked child. <laughs> wicked from his youth. And Genesis 6, it says that God was grieved that he created mankind. God was, God was grieved. I mean, that's how wicked we were. There's a big theological term. It's called total depravity. We are totally depraved. Totally depraved. And, and so God then decided he was going to unleash a flood upon the earth to destroy all life. And had God killed every single human on that day when the waters started coming, he would have been completely just. But there's this phrase in Genesis 6 where it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I love that. I mean, even Noah's family should have been wiped out that day. But in God's grace... He spared Noah. And from Noah's family, y'all are here. God's kindness is on display. And then there's you. And then there's you. The first time you sinned, 
Same thing that should have happened to Noah's family. It should have happened to Adam. should have happened to you. Romans says the wages of sin is what? Death. That's us. We should have died the first time that we sinned. Ezekiel says the soul who sins shall die. And yet in his mercy, God has given you grace. He has not given you what you deserve. Instead, he leads us beside still waters. He gives us kindness, something that we don't deserve. Another way that God proactively shepherds is he provides reconciliation. As we start looking at our sins, as we start seeing the wages that we deserve, after, as we start seeing this, we see that we are in a very desperate situation. The Bible says that prior to conversion, we were at en- enmity with him. I hate saying that word, by the way. Get the N's and the M's mixed up. But here in Psalm 23, it says this. It says, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. And that word for restore, it means to recover, to turn back, to change. He revives my soul. Because in our sin, we deserved hell. We were lost. There was something wrong with us. Ephesians 2, at the very beginning, says, even while we were dead in our trespasses. Even when we we were dead in our trespasses. Dead. Romans says we were deserving of death. And yet, through the work of Christ, he paid for our sin. By the work of the Holy Spirit, he regenerated our dead hearts. And if you are in Christ, the Lord has restored your soul. He has brought you back from death to life. There's a radical change. I I love John 11. John 11, Lazarus has just died. And Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus. And remember, he goes to Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus has been dead four days. And do you remember what they say? They go to Jesus, Jesus says, open the tomb. And do you remember what they tell Jesus about Lazarus? They go, but Jesus, he, if you have the King James, he stinketh. I love that word, he stinketh. But Jesus, he stinketh. I don't know how you can say stinketh and not giggle a little bit. But Jesus, he stinketh. And Jesus doesn't care. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus was a rotting corpse at that moment. And somehow when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, a radical change happens. He restores his soul. Life enters into Lazarus' rotting, dead corpse. And he hops out of the tomb. I say hops out because I also picture him wrapped up like a mummy. And so he's coming. <laughs> and he comes out alive and, and restored and revived. You were dead in your trespasses. Do you realize this is you? And if Christ has restored your soul, something better happen because you're no longer a rotting corpse. You are alive. And if God has changed you, if he's brought you from Lazarus to life, then man, we got we to live like it. It's so easy. I, I am gifted with the spiritual gift of complaining. I don't know if it's really a spiritual gift, but I love to complain. <laughs> I mean, maybe you're, you, you get it, you know, like it, it's fun to just complain about dumb things that I see. And it's easy to fall into the trap of the culture around us and just be like them and complain because our culture is lost. They're frantic. And, and just think of the, the political spectrum. Conservatives are crazy right now. Liberals are crazy right now. Everyone is crazy right now and everyone's angry. Everyone's freaking out. 
We're panicking about our morals. We're panicking about vaccines. We're panicking about mandates. We're panicking about this law. We're panicking about that law. But guess what? As Christians, we are living under a shepherd who is proactively leading us. And so we got to live differently. You know, those who are without Christ, I'll be honest, I think they have a reason to complain. I think they have a reason to be afraid. I think they have a reason to be just, I, I say on the edge of insanity. I think there's a reason for it. Because without Christ, they are going to hell. Why are they panicking over vaccines and COVID and masks and all this? Because they have nothing else, else to live for. But for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have God as our shepherd, we better be different. Because our souls have been restored. And how have they been restored? By Jesus Christ. Because he died for us. And this gives me so much great comfort beyond what's going on in the world around us. Another way that God is proactively leading as a shepherd is he provides a path. In other words, God has a plan. Never forget that the Lord is my shepherd. It doesn't say the Lord is my blind guide. He's my shepherd. God is not open theistic. He, he has a decree. There are paths. There are places that, he, that there is a plan that he has predestined to take place. He has a goal in mind and, and he's leading us there. In fact, even at this time, even right now, what's today? February 18th, 2022. Everything that has happened to this moment, I have confidence that whatever is going on in this world is happening according to his plan. And it's happening according to his plan. Coronavirus, it didn't take God by surprise. Government's response didn't take God by surprise. So as he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, God's plan is good. His plan is good. We have to learn to trust it. It's a good plan. He knows what he's doing. What are we? We're just sheep. I've heard stories of that sheep aren't the most intelligent of animals. You probably could Google examples of them. My, one of my favorite like meme videos I saw on internet internet recently was uh, next to some like next to a road. You probably can look this up. Don't do it now because it's distracting. But there's like this road, and there was some sh- and there was like a giant trench. Like it was like as wide as this music stand, right next to the road, and a sheep had fallen head first into it. But its hips were too wide, so its feet were like hanging out of this trench. So some dude was like, oh, this poor sheep. Have you guys seen this? Some of you, it's like the greatest thing in the world, right? So he goes to it, and he grabs it by the hind legs, and he pulls the sheep out. and like, yeah, he saves its life. And the sheep runs and falls again into the trench. At that point, I'd be having pork chops or lamb chops or whatever you have. I mean, sheep have no idea where they're going. And sometimes we think that we know where God should be leading us. But guess what? You're just a sheep. And if you had it your way, and in fact, we do it in our own way, we're just like that sheep. We keep jumping right back into the trench. And God sits there and he's patient. And he's like, yeah, I did it again. And then what do I do? I jump forward. I go right back into the trench. We're on a good path. Why? Because it's God's path. And right now it looks rocky. It looks uncertain. But we trust in the sovereignty of God. We know that he is leading us. And it says it's for his name's sake. This means that, that God will get glory for this path. A great, Again, a great strategy is to look back on your life. 
Look back on the path that you've been. So you, you sat there along the way. You were complaining every single step of the way, exercising your spiritual gift of complaining. And then you get to the destination and you look back and you go, praise God for where you've brought me. I, I love that. So do that. And then when you make it there, say, yeah, his plan was good. His plan was good. Right now, we're on that path. We don't know what's going on, but trust that it is good. And by extension, I can say that if the path we are on is righteous and it's part of his plan, and if he is our shepherd and he is leading us on it, then it's also something that's for our benefit. Just think of your life. What blessings are you seeing? A great way to rejoice is, and, and just personally to be able to worship God better is to look back. Look back and, and, and see where the Lord is guiding you and how he has changed you. How you are more sanctified today than you were yesterday or two years ago or ten years ago. And then you praise God. But if you can't do that, then you sin because you are making yourself God. Thinking your plans are su- supreme. If we get frustrated when God changes our plans, it, that just means that we need to be humbled. If you become more frustrated that your plans aren't being achieved, it means you've built your life on the sand and you are figuring out that that sand is pretty unsteady. So don't let whatever season of life you are going through go to waste. Trust in the path that the Lord is guiding you. All right. The next reason to trust God in perilous times is to know that you have a God who, you have a shepherd who protects. Look again to Psalm 23. This time look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is everyone's big fear, that they are going to die. The threat of death is near. And what does David say? I love what he says. This, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. The world, they fear evil. Why? Because they have no hope. Ephesians 2 says of the unregenerated that, that they are without God. And Ephesians 2, it also says, and they are without hope in this world. Those of us who have a shepherd who is leading us, we will not fear. We must not fear. Why shouldn't we fear I love what what David says. I I love simple answers. David says, I will fear no evil. Why will he not fear evil? You see it in your text. But why will I not fear evil? He says, for you are with me. I love that. I, I, I want God to talk to me like I'm stupid sometimes. I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. That seems overly simplistic. I will fear no evil. Why? For for you are with me. It's not that God is is sitting up in heaven watching us like we're in some aquarium distant. He's not sitting from the top bleachers of some massive statement looking down at his creation with binoculars. He's not watching life through FaceTime or through Zoom on a computer screen, screen. No, I will fear no evil because he is with us. Jesus is called the Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means? God with us. He is near. And how near is he? If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within your very heart. That's how near he is. That's how near he is. He is is within you. Nothing will ever slip past God. 
Paul had times when his life seemed uncertain, when there were dangers, and yet he never panicked. He said he learned to be content. In fact, I think that it's always good, most of the time it's good, to look at the biggest, baddest example that there is. So what if you're going to die? Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Death doesn't mean that we lose. It means we get to be with Christ. Don't ever forget that. Then you see verse 5. It says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I, I used to have a buddy who was a cop, and, and, and I love this guy. But I used to do something that probably wasn't very nice to him. See, my, my friend who was a cop wasn't very trusting of people. And it's probably because he saw the worst of people. And so somewhere along the way in our friendship, I learned that if we ever went out to a restaurant, he didn't directly say this, I just learned this about him. If we ever went out to eat in a restaurant, he would always pick the corner spot in the restaurant. He'd go up into the corner so he could like see the room and he'd like scope out the exits. I, I'd watch him, he's just like watching like a hawk, right? So I learned that if I could get there before him, I would take that corner spot. So then he had to have his back to as much of the room as possible. Probably wasn't very nice of me. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and, and so we'd sit there, and, and he, the whole time it was uncomfortable, and sometimes he'd like end up almost like sitting next to me, which was weirder than anything else, but just because he was so uncomfortable having the entire room to his back. It's, it's hard to be at ease. It's hard to relax when you feel like the entire room is trying to get to you. And yet this verse says, God has prepared a table in the presence of our enemies. So while you are at war, while the enemies are out to get you, while your back is to the entire room, who you know for sure wants to stab you in the back, God prepares a place for us to rest in the middle of that. And so if you trust in the sovereignty of God, if you trust in an active shepherd who is proactively leading you, then you can go into any situation and you can say, I don't care what's there in front of me. I can get rest. I can sleep at night. Because I know that I have a shepherd who's leading me. I am so saddened by Christians who are terrified by current events. Sure, I'm not happy with everything that happens in culture. I'm not happy with much of what happens in culture. But I know that we have a shepherd who is proactively leading us and who provides and who protects. Third and final reason to trust God in perilous times is that we have a God who is a shepherd who makes promises. Look as we go from the end of verse 5 into verse 6. It says, You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He has made promises to us. There are things that God has decreed will happen. And, and these things that he has, he has promised, they will happen no matter what. Now, there's a, another branch of theology. It's called eschatology. Eschatology. And eschatology has to do with end times. It, it, it's, it's what are we looking forward to? What is going to happen in the future? And for many Christians, they prefer to ignore eschatology because it can be controversial. I mean, there are lots of ideas about eschatology. There, and churches have divided, denominations have divided over this. And so a lot of Christians have said eschatology is too controversial, so I'd rather just not talk about it. 
And so if you're ever in a church group and people start talking about eschatology, sometimes it gets real hush-hush and people start talking in whispers because the heavenians are going to say something that might offend. Christians, we, we have to have an eschatology. You have to have an eschatology. You can't ignore it. Because eschatology says, what do we believe is going to happen in the future? Because if we don't have an eschatology, if, if you have no thoughts of what's going to happen in the future, of when you die, then you really have no hope. If you don't have any concept of what's coming in the future, any concept of what happens when you die, then the question is, what are you trusting Jesus for? What are you trusting Jesus for? I mean, if you refuse to believe anything about the future are are you just living for today and like oh i hope that if i'm a christian things work good for me today i don't want to think about tomorrow paul describes a christianity where there is no eschatology where there's no hope for the future where there is no resurrection from the dead and in first corinthians 15 he says if we have hoped in christ in this life only he says we are of all men most to be pitied most to be pitied if there is no resurrection we are just to be pitied. We are to look sad, to be looked sadly upon. Say there are people who have no hope. There is a life that is wasted. But our great hope is that if Jesus has died for you, He will keep you to the very end. Our great hope is that if Jesus has died for you, then when you die, you will not go to hell, but you will go to be with Him. Our great hope is that if we suffer, that, that though we suffer now, one day we will be resurrected. We will receive new bodies and we will reign with Christ. Our great hope is that though things may look dreary and miserable right now, we live in a world that, that lives in the effects of the fall. There is sin, there is disease, there is death. Our great hope is that Christ will make all things new. That he will make a new heavens and a new earth. And that this new world will be absolutely perfect. Revelation 21 verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So there'll be no more death, no more disease, no more sin. I look forward to that. I don't hope for less disease. I don't hope for less cancer. I don't hope to flatten the curve. I know that there will be no curve because one day there will be no disease. There will be no sin. There will be no suffering. There will be no heartache. And David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And what about when my life ends? He says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? forever. You know why so many people are terrified? It's because they think this is it. The psalmist speaks differently. He looks forward to dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. And when you understand that eternal life is real, then your view of life changes. Your understanding of the direction of history changes. And we can instead march boldly forward. We can march boldly and confidently forward. Trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. John Calvin, I I love John Calvin. He ministered in Geneva. And during his ministry in Geneva, you know, we we complain about two years of COVID. While he was in Geneva, he was terrorized by the plague. Plague, we just don't talk about plagues enough. He was terrorized by the (laughs) plague 
five times. Five times. And in 1542, he spent most of his time personally visiting people's homes that had the plague in it. And and just being near the plague, that was seen as a death sentence. And so the leaders of the church went to John Calvin. They said, Johnny. I don't know if they called him Johnny or not. They probably didn't. They said, like, John. They said, John, they, they said, we, we can't afford to lose you because he was the main preacher and he was the main trainer of pastors. They said, we can't afford to lose you. Please stop doing this. You know what he, he did? He didn't. He kept going. He kept going. And, and the plague continued to run rampant. And he didn't stop the plague. People were still dying of the plague. But in his work, the gospel was preached. And though people were dying on their deathbed, miserable deaths, Lives were changed, hearts were converted, and heaven was filled. Because he knew that those who are in Christ shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is Psalm 23. I love Psalm 23. It's in the the songbook of Israel. But it's more than just poetic language. It describes the hearts of those who live under the reality of the great shepherd during perilous times. He gives his sheep reason to trust. And I want you to have this trust. Life is not going to be easy. Life is not going to be easy. In fact, 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Do you know what he says next? Peter says, but rejoice. But rejoice. Next time hard times come, Peter says, rejoice. Why? He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He wrote that under the context of persecution. We're not in the same situation as Peter. We're not even close to it yet. But there is a threat, and we are in a trial, and you are being tested. And may we be set apart as a people who rejoice and have confidence in Christ. You have a good shepherd and he leads and protects those he loves. So let's be distinct, huh? All right, would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, again, I thank you for being a proactive God, for being a shepherd who leads us, who is well aware of everything that's happening to his sheep here. And so to the saints that are here tonight, and I mean it, would you comfort them? Would you remind them that you are leading them? Let them find rest. Let them know that you are protecting them. Let them know that you are holding them firm. And then would we live distinctly as reasonable people, level-headed, rejoicing in you always. We pray this.